you have probably found before I was able to the outline in the middle of your bulletin. And uh, it contains, um, as has been my pattern in recent weeks, to have a translation. Um, and I'm always glad for the fact that the ESV is read, and uh, that will probably continue to happen because it's an authoritative translation that has been approved by our bishops and church. Uh, but I nonetheless like to um, have a translation of my own because it keeps me close to the text and it allows me to uh, tease out some features that might not otherwise be known and that reflect something of my own understanding. So with this passage, we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it um, began with the story of the two paths that we finished last week with. And we were admonished to find the narrow path. This is an obscure path off to the side through which few people enter. But it is the way to life. And the default, as Jesus has taught, is a way to destruction. So Jesus is concluding his teaching with some harsh warnings, with some advice that constitutes uh, wisdom literature. Uh, Jesus is not only uh, a prophet of the future, he's not only a giver of the divine word, but he is a wise man who here is giving us advice. So at this point in our, uh, in our, in our, um, in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we have come to the concluding section. And as I did last week, I thought it might be helpful, and here I refer you to your outline, uh, just to uh, rehearse some of the features of the Sermon on the Mount. I think the key theme is Jesus's go deep kingdom righteousness. Jesus's go deep kingdom righteousness. And last week I had five or six tenets as I reviewed the Sermon on the Mount and I went back to the text of the Sermon on the Mount and came up with these points. And I'm wondering if there are points that you think might be missing and feel free to say so if I get to the end and you want to say, what about this? That'll be an encouragement to others and a good review and also to keep us all on our toes. Because after all, listening to me for 25, 30 minutes is not always the most um, exciting, involved activity on your part. So the key points include the following. Jesus, is, Jesus both fulfills God's law or Torah teaching he is the divine Moses who is giving an authoritative teaching of the law. But here he fills it in. And in verses 5 to 17 to 7 to 12, Jesus gives us examples of what he means by this greater, fuller righteousness. It's that which must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that of the scribes and the Pharisees was no small thing. They were meticulous. But Jesus wants us and them to go deeper, to look at what lies at the heart of God, and to spare nothing in probing the very depths of what it means to be righteous. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Point number two, Jesus' divine teaching, Jesus' divine Torah, as the Jews would call it, consists of a godly righteousness. This takes us back to the theme, Jesus' go-deep kingdom righteousness. And this righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and what kind of a righteousness is it? After the dash, I've included the things that came to mind. It is holistic, radically deep, generously godlike, entirely trustful in and dependent upon God. 
No worrying about tomorrow, no treasuring up treasures on earth. And it is focused on his glory. And knowing on, on his glory and on his knowing, rather than on others seeing and rewarding us with praise. So we have constantly through the Lord's, uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, been given two options. Um, showing off to people and getting the reward of praise and admiration, or honoring God by what we do in private and earning a heavenly reward. And then thirdly, we are to illumine and sanctify the world with Jesus' kingdom ethic. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And we have a role in promulgating this Jesus God-focused kingdom ethic. And finally, as we will be reminded in the third analogy, the simile of the two houses, the most important thing is that we must in fact be doers of the word and not only hearers. And of course we do that by God's mercy and with his help. So without further ado, let me go back to the translation that I've given you. And I want to begin it by a bit of a reminder because you might have noticed throughout the Sermon on the Mount uh, that there is um, a certain creative tension between the grace of God, which comes through faith in Jesus alone, by God's grace, and this high standard that Jesus has for his followers. And a New Testament commentator by the name of Hagner from Fuller Seminary um, said something that I want to put at the top of the translation, and he says the following, the Sermon on the Mount stands within the canon of the church as a proper antidote to Paulinism, that is, what's understood often to be the teaching of Paul. Paulinism that, unlike Paul himself, champions a gospel of cheap grace. All you have to do is believe in Jesus and your life is secure. Uh, you don't have to worry anymore. Um, and God forbid, you might think that you can live as you jolly well please because you've got God over the barrel because you believe in Jesus. It's that kind of thing that I think Jesus is presenting a, a counterbalance to. So, we have two more metaphors. We concluded, this, uh, the Sermon on the Mount concludes with three metaphors, that of the two paths, the narrow and the broad, which we looked at this week. And now in verses 15 to 23, we come to the metaphor of two trees. They're, of course, not really about trees. The trees are a metaphor for uh, things that bear good and bad fruit. Jesus says, Be on the lookout for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. By their fruits you will recognize them. Notice that set again at the end of the paragraph. Underline that because uh, Jesus underlines it by repeating it. By their fruits you will recognize them. And then as we've seen, Jesus picks an analogy from life. Grapes aren't plucked from thorns, nor figs from thistles, are they? Of course not. Accordingly, every good tree yields good fruit, and every bad tree yields bad fruit. It is possible neither for a good tree to bear bad fruit, nor for a bad tree to bear good fruit. Every tree not bearing good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. So then, by their fruits you will recognize them. And then Jesus goes, and without talking about false um, prophets, he nonetheless um, tucks under the umbrella of false prophets people who work wonders, who feel that they're in the kingdom but aren't. 
And this is something that ought to uh, cause us to, um, uh, to, to uh, kind of brace ourselves and to question ourselves. And I'll have something more to say about this in a minute. Jesus continues, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in the heavens. Many will say to me on that day, that is the final day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not in your name prophesy, in your name expel demons, and in your name do mighty deeds? And then I will say to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, O practitioners of lawlessness. So let's go back to the beginning and look at the notion of false prophets and false teachers. Someone has noted that it's not very likely that the church is going to be led astray by someone who's blatantly unorthodox. I mean, if I were to come in and say, Jesus is not the son of God and you should be worshiping the Buddha as well as Jesus, I mean, you would know to write me off, right? At least I hope so. Now, followers of Jesus are not likely to be led astray by people who are obviously heretics and swindlers. It's more likely that people like you and me will be led astray by those who appear to be on the side of good but who in reality are counterfeits. The problem will lie with a Christian leader, teacher, or congregation measure, member who fits right in, who says and does the right things, appears orthodox and on board, and is understood by most of the flock to be just another sheep rather than what he or she really is, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Well, that may seem a little bit distant to you. I don't know. Um, it, it probably does to me as well, but maybe that means that we need to pay all the more attention. Jesus has already taught in the Sermon on the Mount that we're not to judge other people, so this isn't a summons to a witch hunt, but it nonetheless is a, an admonition to be vigilant, to kind of be on the lookout for anyone who might not be walking the talk, as it were. In fact, the New Testament has a lot to say about false prophets. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 11, Jesus warns, quote, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. In, in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 30, Paul is speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he says, I know that after my departure, Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. By the use of fierce wolves, it seems as though Paul is aware of this teaching of Jesus. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. In 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, Paul warns of opponents in Corinth and talks about them as follows. He says in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 11, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise, Paul continues, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Well, notice in this case that Paul says these people are Satan imitating Jesus. So this is tricky business. This is going to take some discernment. 
And I want to take a few minutes simply to look and uh, to go back through some of these passages, particularly Acts chapter 20. And I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 20, um, because in Paul's defense of himself, I think he gives us several criteria for discerning the difference between a true and a false prophet. Um, Acts chapter 20, starting um, at verse 18, in fact. Uh, sorry, uh, um, let me find my Acts passage. I'll turn to it myself. Acts chapter 20, starting at verse 13. I'm sorry, let's start at verse um, 18. Okay, 29 and 30 uh, is where uh, he talks about false prophets. But if you go back to the context, we'll notice several things that we can pick up that identify um, some features that we need to pay attention to. For one, Paul says, you know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Two things here, humility and hardship. Uh, this was not a cakewalk for Paul. He continues in verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So Paul is not shrinking back from teaching people what he later calls in the same passage, the whole counsel of God. Verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. One commentator has noticed that it is uh, possible that the false teachers may not be saying anything wrong, in fact, but you have to pay attention to what they're leaving out. Carson writes, there is nothing in their preaching which fosters poverty of spirit, nothing which searches the conscience and makes people cry to God for mercy, nothing which excoriates all forms of religious hypocrisy, nothing which prompts such righteousness of conduct and attitude that some persecution is inevitable, it is even possible that in some instances that everything these false prophets say is true. But because they leave out the difficult things, they do not tell the whole truth, and thus their message is false. So it's important to look at what might be missing on the list. So in verse 18, uh, they're humble. They, Paul is humble and he welcomes hardship. In verse 20 and in verse 27, Paul doesn't shrink back from teaching the whole counsel of God. He also says in uh, verse 20, Uh, sorry, in verse, 20, in verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. He's being led by the Spirit. 
Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. <laughs> so Paul is saying, in effect, um, the Spirit is leading me to go and get creamed, as it were. So um, what is in it for this teacher? Uh, nothing, it would seem, but a desire for the will of God. Paul is not one who is uh, seeking after um, the things that one might expect of others. In verse 31, Paul says, Be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Three years going around telling people to repent and to follow God and doing so with tears. Folks, this is relevant because I'm conscious of the fact that you're going to be looking for a rector and you're in the process of doing this. And uh, you will, I hope, welcome some tools for distinguishing between someone who really has a heart for God and someone who might be in it for uh, reasons other than those which are holy. And finally, in verse 33, I noticed that Paul says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. One of the characteristics, I think, of many false teachers today is that they go overboard with the prosperity gospel. And they want to say that the sign of God's blessing will be if I am wealthy and you are wealthy. I was asked when I was in Korea in 2014 to preach um, on short notice in a church in Seoul. And um, I agreed. I was in the southern part of the, of the country, but I got on a train. And I was met at the airport by the executive assistant to the pastor who was driving a limousine. And I was invited to get into the back of the limo, and I said to the guy, like, what is with this? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, <laughs> this is a limo. Like, does your pastor, well, he's a very busy person, you know, and he's hardworking, and he needs a limousine. And uh, it became apparent to me that was, this was somebody who uh, was making an awful lot of money. And I know that because I got paid more money for that sermon than I ever have for us. For us. They paid me $1,000 in cash under the table to preach for half an hour. What am I doing at Christ the King, I asked myself. Well, <clears throat> there is pay and advantage. There's a well-known Latin American uh, preacher uh, who has executive jets and who's fabulously wealthy. And he went to France and um, he left his mansion, his villa, in control of God's guardian angels. And when he came home, he found that his palace, his villa, had been ransacked. So um, he gave a sermon the next Sunday in this arena where he had hundreds and thousands of followers, and he fired the guardian angels in heaven that were appointed to look after his mansion. <laughs> that takes a little bit of uh, chutzpah, does it not? I think maybe God is trying to tell him something. So one of the things that comes into these things, folks, I think is that uh, it's, it's important to look for somebody who might have motives other than those which are focused upon God. It can be money. It can be looking for a following. I mean, you know, getting on a pedestal or a podium and talking to people every week can sometimes feed the ego and you're looking for maybe a bit of a following. Um, you know, we, are, we go to so-and-so's church. Well, who's so-and-so? I thought the church was Jesus' church. Um, is it your church or are you called to be, uh, participate in the ministry of what Christ is doing in his church? So there's a, a, there's a long list here of things that I think are really important. 
And I also believe that there are underlying psychological factors that can sometimes come into play. We are very complex creatures. And sometimes we can be on the opposite side of goodness and truth, barely even noticing it ourselves. So I like it when I hear bishops in our denominations saying that they want to give a prospective pastor a psych evaluation. Um, because I think that psychology and spirituality have a meeting point, And we need to be careful when it comes to the hiring and securing of leaders. So false prophets are a danger to the church and there's something that we want to be on the lookout for. Well, we have looked at the issue of um, the criterion of discerning uh, the difference between a false preacher and a, and, a, and a true teacher, a false prophet and a true prophet. But Jesus' bottom line summary here is, by their fruits you shall know them. He says it twice, by their fruits you shall know them. But if you look at the next paragraph, we have a problem, or at least what struck me as a problem, and I wondered if it struck you as a problem. Um, look at what Jesus uh, then identifies in the second paragraph, starting in verses 21 to 23. Basically, what Jesus is doing is he's identifying people who are being fruitful as false prophets. He talks about people who are uh, casting out demons in his name, they're prophesying in his name, they're performing miracles in his name, and Jesus says, these two can be false prophets. Uh, Roger at our staff meeting earlier this week when I was talking about this passage said to me, um, I hope you'll address this issue and I'm glad that he underscored it for me because I think this is confusing. Let me explain a little bit uh, about what I mean by that and I hope not to confuse you all the more. Well, first of all, um, there is the problem of an apparent contradiction here. Jesus has just finished saying, by your fruits you shall know them. And now he says, well, there are these people who are performing miracles and they're prophesying and they're casting out demons. And guess what? Um, I don't know who they are. So I think part of the solution comes in uh, taking a step back and just analyzing the difference between our culture and that of the first century. And by that, I mean simply the following. You see, we tend to think that someone who performs a miraculous deed in the name of Jesus must be a spiritual giant. I mean, I haven't performed a whole lot of miracles myself. In fact, I, I have a pretty short list. It's on an invisible piece of paper. I haven't expelled too many demons myself. Uh, I haven't done a lot of prophesying myself. So if somebody comes along and they've expelled demons and they prophesied and they worked miracles, we think, whoa, this person is a spiritual giant. But actually, that wasn't so in the first century. And if we look at several passages in the New Testament, we can be reminded that that indeed was not so. In fact, it was quite common for people to do these extraordinary deeds. So what I'm suggesting is that we need to remember uh, that in different times and places, what is extraordinary to us wasn't so extraordinary. Uh, we were in Acts chapter 20. If we were to go back to Acts uh, chapter 19, and we won't for the sake of time, but I'll just want to read you something. You won't be surprised by verses 11 to 12 of Acts chapter 19, which say, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. 
so that when uh, the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Okay, well, Paul was a spiritual giant. There's no problem there. Verses 13 following of Acts chapter 19. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus. Note, Jesus here is talking about people who in my name prophesy, in my name expel demons, and in my name do mighty deeds. So these exorcists, in the name of the Lord Jesus, tried to exercise power over evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And then, Paul, uh, um, and then Luke continues reporting of Paul. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit said to them in reply, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who in the world are you? But then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, and so overpowered them that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So in other words, there are uh, uh, people in, mostly in other times and in other places, I believe, who do extranatural things, and yet they're not godly. So in other words, we shouldn't associate the doers of miracles with the bearer of fruit. After all, in the Sermon on the Mount, what kind of things characterized a good, righteous person? Somebody who's up front performing miracles? No, it's somebody who's in a closet praying. Is it somebody who's uh, expelling demons? It could be. But then there's always a chance that they're kind of doing that for show. And in fact, in another chapter in Acts, we meet a, a guy by the name of Simon Magus in Samaria who was making money by performing miracles. And there's no denying that he was performing miracles. So um, take away the spirituality from uh, paragraph two. And I think that will help us to understand how there can be consistency between what Jesus is saying here and what he's just finished saying about bearing fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, and scholars have pointed out, I think rightly, not that this is some kind of, um, 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 you know, kind of a protest, but they're trying to justify themselves. Lord, Lord, did we not in your name prophesy? Yeah, so what? Lots of people were doing that. In your name, expel demons. Yeah, the Jewish exorcists were doing that in my name. And in your name, do mighty deeds. Yeah, there were people who were invoking my name and cashing in on my power to do that. Then I will say to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, O practitioners of lawlessness. Practitioners of lawlessness. Some of your translations say that that word is evil, but actually it is lawlessness. It can mean evil, but in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, practitioners of lawlessness are people who are not following the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So these practitioners of lawlessness are um, not kingdom righteous seekers. One scholar has said, and it's in the, uh, the footnotes of your handout, and uh, you've probably noticed that the seminary professor's never gotten away from writing essays and having footnotes, but I actually hope that you'll look at these footnotes because sometimes the best things are in footnotes. And this is so in footnote chapter, footnotes five. Pennington says, Jesus redefines law keeping here as his own prophetic, eschatological, and Christologically authoritative reading of the law over against the scribes and Pharisees of the day. 
So friends, if we're tempted to be intimidated by those who perform miracles and do wonders, we should stop and say, wait a minute. Jesus has a different standard, and that is bearing good fruit that is characterized by this inward, go-deep, Jesus, God-focused righteousness. It's not showy. Well, I think that there's a lesson here, and that is, is that we can be inclined, as Paul warns us in Corinthians and elsewhere, to seek those more demonstrative gifts. If you're um, casting out demons, and you're speaking in tongues, and you're prophesying, you must be super spiritual. Mm. No, Jesus is defining spirituality here in different terms. So we ought not to be intimidated or wonder why these people were excluded. Chances are they knew they had it coming and they were giving a last ditch attempt to get into the kingdom by saying, well, in your name we did it. Jesus said, nice try guys. I don't know who you are. So that's the analogy of the uh, two trees. Let me check in with myself and my outline. There's more than one reason why I give you an outline. It keeps me on track as well as you. We come now to the two houses. Uh, Jesus' concluding metaphor. And uh, just to give us a little bit of a break, I thought it would be helpful to draw your attention to a picture that um, is on your table there. It's a picture of a house in uh, the area of Chicoutimi in 1996. In 1996, there was uh, an enormous flood in the area of uh, Chicoutimi, and to everyone's surprise, including the owner of the house, uh, everybody's house just whistled down the road, uh, except this one. And it belonged to an 81-year-old woman named Jeanne d'Arc Louvet Geneste. And um, as she was leaving the house, she said a prayer to, uh, to St. Was it St. Anne or St. Anthony? And anyway, that was her explanation for why the house stood still. Uh, well, if I were a Roman Catholic priest, I might make more of this than uh, I would as an Anglican priest, but I want to draw attention to another thing that might account for it. And that is, is that the previous owner in 1950 um, took the time to secure the house to the rock upon which it was built. And I don't know how it was done. I think it must have been done with, um, I don't know, concrete posts or something. But anyway, this house was glued to that stone platform. And so, friends, it said that there was as much water rushing around that house as goes over Niagara Falls. And yet that house stood firm on its own. Well, for those of you who know the story, um, and uh, everyone does, I'm obviously talking about Jesus' concluding analogy here in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, I lost my outline. Jesus doesn't say I lost my outline. Glenn says he lost his outline. There we go. Verses um, 24 following. Everyone who hears these, my own words, and acts on them may be compared to a prudent man who built his house on stone. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and fell upon that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded upon stone. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them may be compared to a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and pummeled that house, and it fell. And it fell with a great crash. 
This is not so much the story of two houses as it is the story of two foundations. And the foundation of the house all hangs on whether we simply give uh, verbal assent to the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, profound wise teacher you are, Jesus, or whether we actually put into practice the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. The important thing is doing, not acknowledging, not reading, not giving lip service, but actually doing. Um, James, of course, was familiar with the teachings of Jesus, and he says in James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. My friends, seven times in this passage alone, the verb do is used. I think it's used 22 times in the Sermon on the Mount and over 85 times in Matthew. And that word do is hidden in the English because it's translated um, act, declare, practice, obey. But the point is doing it. That makes all the difference. But oh, what a challenge. Oh, what a challenge. How would you do if we were to go back to the Sermon on the Mount and have a little checklist beside all of the things that Jesus asked us to do? You know, love your enemies. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Don't store up your treasures on earth and just go, check, done, check, done, check, done. That is what Jesus is asking us to do here. And this is why I think it's important to go back to what we saw at the heading of the sermon, where we're reminded of the grace of God. Because Matthew teaches the grace of God and our need for God's mercy as much as Matthew's Jesus teaches that we need to be perfect. We need to be wholehearted, zealous, go deep practitioners of Jesus' righteousness. We have reason to ask in order for it to be given to us. We have reason to say we are poor in spirit and need your help. We have reason to say, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Well, my friends, the sermon is over. And we have in verses 28 and 29 two final contrasts. The contrast between two kinds of Jewish leaders. In verse 28, it came to pass... I just have to stop there. And it came to pass. Matthew is conscious of the fact that in recording the teachings of Jesus, he is continuing the tradition of the Bible. For those of you who are familiar with the King James Version of the Old Testament, the narratives always go, and it came to pass that so-and-so, and it came to pass that so-and-so. So Matthew uses the same language of Jesus here, and he says, and it came to pass that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were astonished at his teaching because he was instructing them as one possessing authority and not like all of their scribes. In a way, this comes all full circle in Matthew chapter 12, when the Pharisees, on hearing and seeing the miracles that Jesus was performing, they said to this, 
It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. This wonder worker, he's a corrupt wonder worker. But Jesus was able to respond and to show them that his teaching was true because he was good. And he invoked the analogy of a good tree bearing good fruit. And he says, in effect, as one person has summarized the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verses 3 to 37, trees produce according to their nature, either good or bad. It's as simple as that. Either my works are, are, either my works are truly good, Jesus is saying, and therefore I am good, or my works are bad, and therefore I am bad. Jesus is the doer of miracles, the one who expels demons, the Moses who gives us a new law. And his actions attest to the truth of his teachings. This is a good man. This is God-man. And he asks us to rely upon God's grace to follow his teachings. Amen.